Hi there. It's obviously been a while since our last episode. I think something like three months. Now, the reasons for that are complicated. Well, actually, they're not that complicated. We're just very, very busy people. And unfortunately, although we love making the podcast, it's been very hard to find time to fit it into our schedules over the last few months. However, I want to reassure you that we are doing our best to make sure that the show does go on. We've recorded two episodes, one of which you're about to listen to, and the other of which we're still working on getting edited up. So, there is more Squamates Pod in your future. We are also going to continue to make episodes. It may be that we do have to decrease the frequency with which we are releasing. Until a few months ago, we were trying to release on a one-episode-per-month schedule. Obviously, that wasn't working, and we let the ball drop a bit. In fact, I dropped the ball rather hard, because, you know, I had to defend my PhD, and then I had to move, etc. So, you know, shit happens. Anyway, the situation is, we're gonna keep making the show, we hope that you keep supporting us, even if we can't release as often as we want to, and we're going to try and make it more regular but less frequent, if that makes any sense. Finally, before we get into episode 13, I want to thank you all for supporting the show, for sharing it with your friends, and for telling us how much you enjoy it. It really means the world to us, and we wouldn't keep doing it if it weren't for the fact that so many people have said such nice things to us. So thank you all, and without further ado, here is episode 13 of the Squamates Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Squamates Podcast! This is a very serious podcast about reptiles and amphibians, where the language is strong and the jargon is stronger. I am one of your three co-hosts, except two for this evening. My name is Dr. Mark D. Schertz. It's like the first time I get to say that. I'm very excited. I'm a herpetologist and an evolutionary biologist, and I'm joined this evening by just one of the other two co-hosts, Gabriel. And I'm Gabriel Ugeto, and I'm a scientific illustrator and paleo artist, and I used to work in herpetology, but not anymore. Excellent. So, unfortunately, Ethan couldn't be with us this evening. Uh, I say evening. It's only evening for me. For Gabriel, <laughs> exactly. it's still 11.40 in the day. morning. It's not even midday <laughs> Well, Ethan couldn't be with us today. He's got too much going on. So you've just got the two of us. And we're going to run things a little bit differently, but more or less following our usual structure. I just want to say that there's a hurricane coming near my way, and I'm still here. So... <laughs> Yes. <laughs> it's not that we're comar- comparing commitment, but... <laughs> just a joke, just a joke. Yeah, it, it's, it, yeah, we're just taking the piss. Um, yeah, yeah, crazy that you're recording in a, in a, in a hurricane, basically, and you... Um, how's, the, how's the shark situation on the balcony? <laughs> I, I will let you know if we get a, a shark this time on the balcony again. <laughs> Thankfully, the hurricane yeah. is just passing to our north, and it won't it, it won't yes. come to the city, which is good. Not not taking any new herps into Miami directly. They're no. bringing them all further north. Exactly. Very, very nice of it. Pushing yeah. them from here to the north. 
Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we're going to let's dive right in. Let's talk about our works in progress. Um, so I am officially Dr. Shirts, which is very exciting. Uh, I know that on the last episode, I talked about having the defense and how exciting that was. But uh, in Germany, I don't know how this works in the States. I think in the States is a little bit differently. But in Germany, you don't get to call yourself a doctor until you have received your Urkunde drink, yeah. your uh, certificate. Yeah. <laughs> so um, there was some risk that I might not receive my, my uh, certificate for like a month and a half. But as it transpired, the um, president had managed to sign it just before going off on holiday. So I got it uh, earlier this week, I guess. Um, yeah, and it was uh, really exciting. So now I get to call myself Dr. Shirts. I am not a Dr. Shirts PhD, <laughs> but a Dr. Rare Nut, which stands for Rerum Naturalium. I'm a doctor of the natural sciences, um, which is on the one hand, badass and on the other hand extremely disappointing for my childhood self who always wanted to be dr mark t-shirts phd so so like i'm having a difficult time reconciling these two bits of me that are like yay i finished my phd Ooh, it's not really a phd and um well but only only whole... it's just only a name i mean it's not yeah yeah no it doesn't matter i changed my i changed my website and my email thing immediately though i was so excited no but so. i mean like the phd is basically is a phd i mean it's, it's not yeah it's it's a it's a, essentially a phd yeah. and in fact my my e email signature it now says which is stupid stupid it says dr mark t shirts phd and then in brackets dr rare not because as a dr rare not you're allowed to call yourself a phd but not the other way around, mm. right? So it's like a square is a rectangle, but a rectangle is not a square. And uh, so for understandability for everyone else, I call myself PhD, but in fact, I'm Dr. Rarenot. Anyway, that's way too much information about that. <laughs> uh, what I was going to say is I immediately overhauled my website, which was very fun. And I've also added a few interesting pages to my website, which includes a list of all currently recognized species of reptiles and amphibians from Madagascar, not including the oceanic species. So uh, you can go check that out. It's You'll see it in the menu um, system on the thing. And yeah, I rearranged some other things and I changed the symbol and it was all, it was needing an upgrade and now it's got one. By oceanic species, you mean what? Sea turtles and... Right. The sea turtles, the, the pelagic sea snake, uh, the... Why did you not include yeah, that's them? It. That's not that many. I mean, what's the reason not to include them? Uh, because they add entire families and adding additional families to my sorting system was really annoying. Oh. <laughs> and also, I don't consider them to be <clears throat> fauna of Madagascar proper because although the sea turtles do nest on Madagascar shores and whatever, like the sea snake has only been observed a handful of times. Well, and yeah, but the, it's still the, within the territory, right? Yeah. I mean, if yeah. you if you did like a list, you had to include them. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. And like the reptile database includes these things, and I'm very on the fence about it because if I'm talking about Madagascar's diversity, I'm meeting its 
terrestrial and freshwater diversity. Yeah, not but its I have never seen a book that deals or any list that deals with the fauna from any for the herpeta fauna from anywhere that don't list oceanic species. So you have wow. to list them. Period. Ha! Huh. In, in so doing, I have made myself unique. There we are. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> yeah, anyway, I, I might add those at a later date, but for now I like to... The reality is that dealing with sea turtles is super boring. <laughs> <laughs> That's the I reason. I say that. I, I, I find sea turtles boring. I'm sorry, but I find turtles in general... Unless they are unless they are I've I've talked about this before, but I found ter- I find turtles in general unless they are Mesozoic, <laughs> and by Mesozoic I mean like early Mesozoic turtles, super boring. So, uh, well, <laughs> that's sad. I find turtles to be fascinating. Like they're very very weird animals. Yeah, but super boring. I mean, like, very weird animals. They just I, I they think do it's because crazy they're... things with sex determination. They some of them are literally flat, so they fit between rocks. Yeah, that's all they great. Get huge. They're, they're one, I like turtles, but what I'm saying is that compared to other groups of reptiles, well, they're not snakes, are they? But you know, or lizards, or crocodiles, <laughs> or, or lizards, birds. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know. They're. <laughs> They're not the most okay. exciting thing in the world. Like I No, they're not the most exciting thing. In the and, world. And, and by this I I mostly mean sea turtles. I like terrestrial turtles a lot more. But sea turtles because oh. because it's I, find, I like to see them and I love to go scuba diving and see them and they're wonderful and I love them. But it's just that they're super I mean, we know a lot about them. And I think that just Yeah. I think there's, yeah, there's not that many really exciting questions that still exist about sea turtles. I will give you that. Uh, Also, it's been a really, really long time since new species were discovered, like, properly. Because there are only, what is it, 12? No, even less than that. I think there are, like, what, like, seven? Yeah, they're just not a lot. The two Kelonia species, Careta redmochelis, Lepidochelis, and um, the leatherback Dermochelis. So that's it, right? It's like seven. seven. Yeah, Yeah. seven. Yeah, so I mean, you're right. They're not that exciting. I find leatherback sea turtles to be very exciting because they're so fucking weird. They're the best of the group. Um, But yeah, I mean, give me a, a a flies river turtle any day. Yeah, same, <laughs> yeah. same, same. I mean, convergent evolution uh, of of the flippers and everything. That's really cool. I really like to swim with sea turtles. I find it to no, be fascinating, and very exciting when I get to see them. They're amazing. Bro. But yeah, okay, I'll give it to you. They're not like the world's most exciting reptiles. Exactly. Yeah. So for me, every time okay. I'm writing about a group of herpetofauna, uh, when I get to like sea turtles, I go like, oh, that's, that's what happens. <laughs> yeah, that's how I feel whenever I get to hemidactylus. Yeah. I'm always like, oh, we do not need to talk about hemidactylus. I don't even have or to. Rana. Yeah. <sighs> I mean. <laughs> anyway. So we can we can uh, we can continue. Yes, where where we? Um, 
But yeah, that there, there are some already some hot takes in this in this episode. <laughs> just a few minutes in. Um, so since the last episode, I've had two more papers published. Um, one of them is by uh, uh, was led by Ashwini Mohan, who's a PhD student in our lab in Braunschweig, um, and it is a comparative phylogeography study between the um, between two different groups of geckos. So Peridura, which are ground geckos. Um, from the, so Peridura gracilis, which are very beautiful, sort of slender, elegant geckos. That's why they're called gracile um, ground geckos. And Felsuma guttata, which is one of the day gecko species, really beautiful um, and bright uh, rainforest dwelling Felsuma. So many of the other Felsumas in northern Madagascar are, you know, willing to come out of the forest into more open areas. But guttata is usually found in closed canopy. Um, places or at least along the edges of those forests and in this new study we showed basically that um, that these two groups of geckos although they're ecologically extremely different so completely like they're not related to each other they're just very very different replicates but they show surprisingly similar phylogeographic patterns Mm. so we have a break uh, in the northeast of Madagascar, similar to the break that exists between Europlatus giganteus and Fimbriatus, which we also showed uh, earlier this year, I think, or last year. Anyway, uh, in that that uh, paper by Gehring et al., we showed that Europlatus fimbriatus and giganteus basically have a divide in this area. But we're showing again and again now that there are lots of different species that are sort of divided Follow in that place. We have a, a biogeographic barrier. Yeah. What is, is there? What's yeah. the barrier? Is a is we have no idea. Oh, there's no geological. There's no mountains. No there's river, no real. No, there's no real barrier there. So in terms about, of um, there, there is a mountain chain that's uh, in the way. Well, but that mountain chain is the same mountain chain that basically runs up and down and across the island. So there's no real reason. Um, that that it so, would necessarily be blocking. I, I, I was about to ask you this because you work in Madagascar, and Madagascar has had so much of these habitats destroyed. I was wondering uh-huh. how much of that is something that we're not seeing because there was a habitat there that was it's currently destroyed, and we don't see or or change to such a point that we don't recognize it as a barrier, but it could have been a barrier, a, a, a habitat I barrier. Think I think that's very unlikely because we would need some really crazy geology to make a different habitat be there. Mm-hmm. So in this particular case, there's actually the, a big rainforest belt <clears throat> that goes. So there's a, a town called Maroncetra. It sits in like the armpit of Madagascar up on the east side, um, up in the northeast. In this, uh, it, it sits on the Bay of Antongil. And... That um, that town sits at the foot of basically this mountain chain, and around that mount of those mountains is still a lot of rainforest. And actually, um, one of the the next big cities is on the north side of that rainforest, the, those mountain chains. But there's no road to get to there. We still haven't managed to, or the people still have not managed to bridge those mountains um, to road traffic. You can go by foot; takes a few days to walk. Um, but there is no way to actually drive that stretch. You have to fly across. So um, that barrier is for, the barrier for humans is still very much there, and the forest that is on those mountains is also still 
uh, more or less intact. Okay. So um, well, it's unlikely that there were any huge rivers that previously flowed that no longer exist. Mm. And it's very unlikely that in the middle of the rainforest, there were some extremely different biome that would have blocked. That is flow. super odd. I don't think I've ever yeah. come across a barrier like that that is replicated by several species that follows yeah. the same biogeographic pattern that is not, you know, response, yeah. a response to some geographical accident. So part of the hypothesis is that the um, that climate oscillations have drawn these animals into retreats. Mm -hmm. So and from those retreats, refugia, were, re, refugia, exactly. And from those refugia, they then um, expanded. They basically uh, uh, expanded again across this area and met up again and were somehow isolated or semi-isolated. So we have sometimes a minimal gene flow in that contact zone, but for the most part, um, none. Hmm. And that pattern is re repeated not just in. Uh, in reptiles, but also in frogs. So, um, and this is actually a, a hypothesis that comes up again and again in terms of uh, Madagascan biogeography that these refugia were responsible for generating some of the, for acting as species pumps, mm -hmm. basically. You retreat to a refugium, you diversify, you come back out, then you retreat again, you might not get the same mix, and then you, you know, you keep this this pumping action. And I would imagine um, that what, they, what they were saying about that is that there was a, 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 the original ancestor was something that was distributed around the forest, then those forests became isolated patches? Yes, yes. Okay. Yeah, and then would have expanded again, and but their time in isolation might have led to a few... Um, mutations that became unique to the two different populations okay. and then that didn't I, make it across that. Now it makes area. more sense. Yeah. So what's interesting is that the Felsuma doesn't have like a super strong signal, um, but the Peridura has a really strong signal. And that could be a result of differing evolutionary rates, of differing population sizes when they were restricted to these refugia, or it could just be a fluke. Um, but whatever the case, we have in addition to the um, the coloration, the the, the uh, genetic differences in the Peridura, we also have uh, coloration differences, mm -hmm. and we think that this may mean that Peridura gracilis is actually two separate species. Just a complex. Exactly, and uh, these would then be divided into north species and south species, but we don't have the. Um, the scalation data or the rest of the stuff to, the, to actually do that. The font part. Stuff. <laughs> yeah. The counting yeah, scale yeah, part. Very super fun part. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be great. Yeah. Um, but that's, it's very likely that, that uh, one of those populations is going to be described as a new species in the future. So that's the first paper. And then the second paper is this one by me et al., um, <laughs> so, so I, together with my colleagues, um, revised this group of, uh, uh, of frogs, which are the genus Mantidactylus, which are a, a group of mantelid frogs from Madagascar. So we've mentioned in previous episodes, if you think of mantella, when you hear the word mantelid frogs, you're wrong. I mean, they are mantelids but they are just one tiny, tiny genus among a very, very diverse group of 
frog. AKA okay, so no, all mantelids are super brightly colorful. Exactly. We have uh, we have stream frogs, we have torrent frogs, we have tree frogs, all kinds of different frogs that look really bizarre. Some of them were described in the genus Rana when they were originally described because they're so similar to real ranids. Um, taxonomically, very complicated history. Mantidactylus are among those that were confused with, um, with European and, and African frogs because they look just like normal sort of uh, you know, normal leaf litter frogs or whatever. Um, but it's also a very diverse genus. Um, and with, it's divided into various different subgenera. And one of those subgenera is Hylobotrachus. And these are the torrent frogs. And until our paper, there were basically just two species of torrent frogs uh, of Hylobotrachus that were recognized. And these were Lugubris and Kawani. Um, and they are just like the uh, Southeast Asian torrent frogs and the South American torrent frogs. They have uh, that very specialized uh, morphology. So they have extremely webbed feet. They're only found like at the border between the water and the and, and stones. So, and apparently they are even able to jump in a manner that basically uh, emulates what our basilisk friends are doing. So they hmm. are jumping on the water's surface rather than actually diving into the water to get away. Wow. So they're, yeah. So um, that seems that might be a peculiarity of the Malagasy frogs, but they're just really um, this this ecomorph of uh, of torrent frogs has repeatedly evolved across the world. And so we were going to do this revision originally, we started it in 2016. And it was originally going to be led by another one of the co-authors on the on the study. But as we worked on it, it got a little bit more complicated. And so uh, when she went off to do other things, I took over and uh, it did indeed become more complicated. But not only because taxonomically it was more complicated, we needed more time on it, but also because I turned around and was like, OK, this is a really interesting thing from a conservation perspective. What if we reframe the entire manuscript to be an example of what is wrong with the way that the IUCN treats species complexes? So these frogs all belong to a species complex. And I think I don't need to explain what a species complex is. But if I do, you can go to our glossary page on the website, squamatepod.com forward slash glossary, I think. We can also <laughs> explain it super quickly because it's not that hard. It's just a, it's a bunch yeah, of species that sure. are not easily recognizable from morphological uh, traits. And they look exactly. very similar, but they are distinct evolutionary species. They just all look very exactly. similar. Exactly. So distinct evolutionary units. And the, it's very important to know also that we have a big, there's a big difference between a species name and an evolutionary unit that we consider a species. And sometimes you have multiple names for one of those units. And sometimes you have multiple units, but not enough names for them. Those are undescribed species. This was a little bit of a mix of both, um, but mostly it was it was these many different evolutionary units with one single name that needed to be addressed. And so what we did is we uh, revised these species. We described two new species that are quite um, quite beautiful. The ones from the north are very cute. They have this like pug nose, very short snout, and we gave them a Malagasy name that means short snout, petakurana. Um, 
But we also use this opportunity to talk about the IUCN red listing assessment thing. And while we're in this section of the show, we're already talking about it. I wanted to dive a little bit deeper into basically what's wrong with the way that the IUCN does this. So um, I am an assessor for the uh, amphibian specialist group of the uh, of Madagascar. So I am part of the IUCN specialist Species Survival Commission, um, Amphibian Specialist Group for Madagascar. And um, basically, we started working in 2014 and have continued over the last few years to uh, work on the conservation assessment of all of Madagascar's amphibians. We've assessed basically all of them again compared to their old assessments. And while we were doing this, we frequently came to the frustration that, first of all, almost all of our assessments are being done under a single one of the IUCN criteria. So the IUCN uses these various different criteria, lettered A, B, C, D, E, in order to assess species into the categories of least concerned, near threatened, vulnerable, endangered, and critically endangered. Or extinct. And, or extinct. There are three different levels of extinct, but yes, extinct. And then there's, of course, data deficient, and um, Which not evaluated. The vast majority of things are data deficient. Should be data deficient, but are not. And that is the point. So um, basically what we had found was that we were assessing every frog, irrespective of how much data we had for it. We we're putting it into one of these threat categories. So even if you know only a single individual, a single observation, the IUCN considers that to be enough information to put this in a conservation category because they are really strongly against right now using data deficient as a category because governments don't recognize data deficient as actually being a prioritization for research. And I can see that which point. Which it should be regarded. Yeah, but I can And see I it. understand that point. But at the same time, if we are ignoring the fact that these animals really don't have enough information to have any kind of confidence on whatever assessment we're giving them, we're falsifying these threat assessments. Yeah, and, it, and, it's, and that's, I see that's that's basically a, the point a dichotomy between what is scientific, scientifically accurate and the point of also that these animals live in very small, have very small distribution in areas that are heavily threatened to be deforested or change or in some way and they right. populations are right. probably disappearing for real, but we don't really have data. So it's a dichotomy right. that is difficult to sort, right? Yeah, you have to find a balance between the two things. You know, we can talk about how uh, how threatened an animal might be if we know it from a single observation. But it could also be that no one has ever bothered to search. And those two things need to somehow be balanced. You know, we could have a single observation but a hundred research expeditions to that one area, then I understand that is a critically endangered species. But if you have one observation from one time that one person has ever gone looking for it, then who knows? It could be extremely threatened. I mean, you can base it on the, on your projections for what's going to happen to the forest, but this could also be a species that's super widespread, but very rare. And we have a lot of those. So we keep finding, for example, these burrowing frogs in completely new places in Madagascar. Yeah. We're like, wow, okay, that's a new 
location for this species that secretive. expands the range by 200 yeah. kilometers. Species with secretive and habits, like, you know, either fossorial exactly. or they live in the canopies and hardly ever yeah. come down to the floor. Yeah, which is the case of most frogs. And especially any frog that has a taxonomic history of being confused with other frogs, where you're like, okay, well, we've been assessing Mantidactylus betzelianus, which is one of these, a, a different group of, of uh, Mantidactylus frogs, but there are eight different, or actually there are about 20 different candidate species, 20 different genetic units that all look very similar to, um, to Betzelianus. So how are we going to know which of those we're actually assessing? And so it turns out because all of these assessments for these poorly known animals are all based on criterion B, criterion B is about the range size of the species, when you're assessing a complex and you follow the IUCN guidelines and therefore include all of your undescribed lineages within that complex as part of a large uh, good species, as they call it, in air quotes, good species. If you, if you assess based on that huge conglomeration and don't put it in data deficient because of the taxonomic situation, but say, okay, well, we think that this is enough data, you're not assessing a species. And what you're assessing is a huge range, uh, and by definition, any unit within that range has, uh, any species within that range um, is probably going to have a smaller distribution than the overall. <clears throat> so you're dramatically underestimating the threat to any one of those units that are inside that, that large range. Could you incorporate to the criteria how the habitats in different areas are being affected? I mean, if it's, like, if it's more not... pressure in certain habitats than others, then I would consider certain species that are better for a candidate to be threatened, right? Yeah, but, so, so yes, well, you can't really do that if you're going to treat the whole thing as one complex. Oh, no, of course. The only way you can do you that is if you that. do what we have now recommended and, and drop out all of the undescribed species. If you can confine your species definition as much as possible to just one of these units, then assess based on that unit. Even if there's a small risk that later on taxonomically you find out, oh, this is the wrong species, you can just transfer that assessment. But until we have managed to do that, you're going to be assessing based on this huge glob of who knows what, and your assessment's worthless. So why not call it then data deficient and say, look, this is a data deficient species. We have to prioritize the taxonomy of this species in order to, in order to protect it. If, as long as we don't understand the taxonomy, we can't do anything. And basically, although the IUCN acknowledges the extreme importance of taxonomy in terms of, of conserving everything, they're sweeping taxonomic uncertainty under the rug and saying, look, we don't care. What the, we care about is getting these assessments done. The problem is that there is so much work that needs to be done in that front with everything. And I mean, even, even, even mammal species that are well studied are species complexes and are, have, that's a huge problem. I think that, 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 that it's a major thing that has to be tackled because we all have discussed here how uh, taxonomy is a, not many people are going into taxonomy, which is a, a, a huge problem. Right. And and so so we need more people to go into taxonomy to solve these issues. 
and uh, and that is uh, that. Is, yeah, I, I I definitely think that. But so, part of the reason it's not funded is that you know that that people like the IUCN, these exactly. enormous organizations based on a foundation of taxonomy, are being like, no, no, it's not important. Yeah. And it they, is. It's the or, fundamental unit that we they use make for a, all of our conservation assessments. Or they make a, a small comment in the in the uh, in the species account right. at the end. Right. Like, oh, this might be a conflict. So, yeah. So basically, I'm on the cusp of turning around and writing a, a, a call to the IUCN to introduce a measure of data quality into the assessment. Because there's a big difference between calling something critically endangered with a huge amount of data, like let's say snow leopards or any any of the the big cats or the or rhinoceros or whatever. These things where we basically know every single individual. They've all got name tags. They've all got pins. Mm-hmm. Whatever. That has a huge amount of data. That's a five star review. That's a you know we're absolutely confident this is a critically endangered species. There's a big difference between that and a frog assessed as B1AB3, which is the, the basically it's found in an area of less than 100 kilometers squared. That forest is under uh, under attack or, or, or possibly, maybe, we think, is declining and it's only found in that one place. Critically endangered, but it's only been seen once. You know, as long as we don't have any way of comparing the quality of our things Critically endangered is critically endangered. It also depends on when that sighting, when the, when the last time it was. Uh, uh, you exactly. Know, because there's and how much time you've tried to look for it. Exactly. And so, you know, there there's a lot that's currently, you know, it, it's, I think that the IUCN is doing a lot of stuff right. It's a great system in order for us to manage the, the information that we have about this diversity. But trying to get rid of or hide the fact that some things may in fact be data deficient is not the right way to go about it. You know, we need to acknowledge what we have enough data for and what we don't. And honestly, I think that, you know, we have, uh, there are 6,000 something assessed amphibians. And of those 1,300 and something are assessed as uh, one of the threatened categories, so either vulnerable, endangered, or critically endangered. And 80% of those, so these are just frogs, I think, and 80% of them are only assessed based on this distribution thing, which is, you know, that means we have basically no information about most of the species because they're only going to be based on a few observations. In Madagascar, you can't do anything else. We don't have... Uh, a so so criteria A C sort of D and E are either based on population size estimates or uh, genuine predictions of extinction risk. So like a, a modeling of extinction risk. So everyone turns to B because B is the easiest way to assess things. Mm-hmm. But if we're honest about it, I would say that a good sixty percent of those things that are assessed as some kind of threatened are going to be really data deficient or or have really poor data quality supporting that assessment. Well, yes, but also we have to see that probably a lot of those are in areas that are in danger, that the habitat itself is right. in danger. So you right. can make a point that, yeah, well, if the habitat is in danger, then these species are in danger, even if, even if they're still somehow present. You know what I'm saying? 
Yeah, so no, I agree with you. I think that that is an important thing to acknowledge that there is a difference between species endangerment and environmental habitat endangerment, e ecological endangerment. Yeah, because especially and, in, in Madagascar, which is so bad with deforestation, and I mean, it's terrible. It, yes, it is extreme, but on the other hand, uh, critically endangered basically means that within the next five years, this species is likely to disappear. And the only cases of critically endangered are the species that are only known from really tiny forest fragments that are liable to be burned in the next two years, three years, five years. In Madagascar. And although, yes. And although that's the case, that for a few species, maybe five, basically everything else that's endangered or critically endangered in Madagascar has not got enough data behind it to really justify that, that categorization. So, or, and their habitat is not threatened enough to justify that categorization. So, you know, we, we need to tread carefully. And basically what we've called for in this species, in this paper, is to say, look, anything that's a taxonomic complex is definitionally data deficient. And we have to prioritize yeah. the taxonomy in order to fix that problem. You can say, all right. The, you know, we could change the way that the IUCN red list works and say, okay, this is data deficient in this aspect, but threatened in another. And that would be fine with me. But the we problem, still, we can't just say that this is not, that we have good enough data for these things. We the problem don't. is that is that they're going to get into a, into, a, into a situation where there are so many species that are species complexes. So many yeah. species of reptiles and amphibians and even mammals that are species species complexes um, that is going to be problematic. I mean, I understand why they are reticent to do it because it, it opens a Pandora box where they, all of a sudden all the data they have becomes a mess. It's difficult to organize. You right. know what I'm saying? Right. Because there are yeah. so many things that are species complexes. I can name you already from the top of my head like <laughs> 50 species that are species complexes. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I I totally agree. I think that this is a serious problem in the in the way of of conservation. But I don't think that we should be ignoring it. I think that we should be proactively doing something about it. Maybe and, something uh, that can be done yeah, in sure. stages. Sure, sure. And I I, I really honestly think, um, as I mentioned before, that that the next step is probably going to be to call for a quality index mm -hmm. for these assessments because. Anything that's assessed under criterion A, which has to do with population size, is almost certainly has more data available for it than anything under criterion B. So, you know, we, we also need, we just need some way, some, maybe just a little green bar that's like full for the, for, uh, let's say, black rhinoceros or whatever, and empty for basically all the frogs. And, you know, I'm okay with saying, with admitting that for frog conservation, we do not know enough from top to bottom. There are some species where we've, we've gone into it and admittedly Madagascar is unique or, or relatively uh, unique in this aspect because Kishrid has not yet come to be a real major player. Which is very different from other um, areas. I'm, oh, which is very different. Every from time you're talking, I, I'm thinking of... South America and the Neotropics, and it's just completely, I mean, there are some things that are very different there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I think our, our system is different, but it's a good place to pioneer these kinds of things. You know, we can, we can turn around and say, look, the only thing that's really threatening most of these animals 
is forest fire and deforestation. And as long as we can manage those threats, um, we don't have a lot that's going to go extinct in the next five years, in the next hundred years, for sure. We've never lost a species. There are no frogs from Madagascar that are known to have gone extinct. There are undoubtedly some that have already gone extinct before we started doing research on them, but we're not yet aware of any that is properly gone. Hmm. Yeah, so, so in that sense, they're a, very different from other parts of the world. Because uh, right. there are so many species in the neotropics that are now considered to be extinct and hasn't, yeah. and species that were and very yet, common and are not there anymore. Yeah, and yet we rediscover those all the time. Well, <laughs> yeah, just, but, but for know. example, I'm thinking about, there are so many species like, like, for example, the famous case of the Costa Rican golden toad. You know, that was everywhere. It was a super common yeah, species yeah. and there's not a single one anymore. That's not that uncommon in the neotropics. I can tell you several cases of frogs that used to be yeah. very common. Yeah, and now no. either the population that have been discovered, rediscovered are tiny and like those mm. have to be considered critically endangered. Right? Like Absolutely. But those are also things where we have the observational data to say that and we don't have to assess them under criterion B. What we need is is a way to be like, well, okay, Criterion B is the shit bin where everything with poor data goes. We need a way to acknowledge yeah. that. Um, and right now, they're, they're just at the same level. We don't talk about them. Okay, this is vul vulnerable Criterion A, and this is vulnerable cr Criterion B, yeah. or critically endangered A and critically endangered B. We just say, this is a critically endangered species. Yeah. So we need to change the way that the red list works, I think, but also the way that we talk about the species and the way that we prioritize the research. I, I definitely think that there has to be a, a, a much more emphasis made on the on when species are species complexes because that will change how we assess it from from you know a, a threatened from how threatened they are. Absolutely, that, that definitely yeah. is very important. The thing is that what I told you is it's going to be a mess, and a lot of and it's difficult to translate that to people that are not uh, involved with taxonomy, like governments and stuff like that, for yeah. them how to manage that, it's well, going to be difficult to translate that for them. Maybe, maybe the first step needs to be looking at species that are currently listed as least concern. Because a large a species with a large area yeah, large under Criterion B can only fall under uh, uh, vulnerable or least concern, yeah. um, or maybe near threatened, but probably not. And it's those species that are assessed as least concerned, like the species that we that we read or, or, or yeah we can find in this new paper. Um, we described Mantidactylus lugubris. We showed that its its range is a fraction of that range that's actually shown uh, in Madagascar in the IUCN list. And when we see, oh, that was assessed originally as least concerned, but after taxonomic revision. That's a vulnerable species or, a, or an endangered species. And those, those are the species that are slipping under the radar. For me, like if it's assessed as critically endangered under either of these things, fine. That prioritizes the research where it's needed. Yeah. It's the species that are listed as least concerned are the ones that are being ignored and forgotten. And those are the ones where we really need that taxonomic research. Be comes. prepared for the number of vulnerable and endangered species to skyrocket. Because once you fraction the, the large distributions into smaller areas that are more susceptible to being... You know, of course. Yeah. Especially under Criterion B. That's going to that's <laughs> drive governments insane. But it, 
it, it needs to happen. Yeah, no, I it totally really agree. needs to happen because, totally and this is, we're not the first authors to call for this. There have been other papers that are, that are basically looking at the distribution of a large species, even in South America. Um, I think it was a Dendropsophus where they, they looked at this thing and were like, oh, actually this is 13 taxonomic yeah. units. Each of those taxonomic units has a tiny distribution area. We're managing this as a least concerned species, but one of those is about to go extinct because mm -hmm. it's about to be burned off the face of the planet. So, you know, those are cases, especially I think with these least concerned things, we need to be really conscious of whether or not this is a species complex. And then least concern is useless for conservation purposes. Data division is not. So if we can turn around and say, look, this is currently least concern, but it's actually a species complex. We should list it as data deficient to prioritize that, that, that taxonomic research that's needed. And maybe we can move it in the right direction. Okay, what we always say, more money into taxonomy, more people to work on taxonomy is super important because none of these things are going to describe themselves. So you need somebody to work on them and, and you know, make sure that they Absolutely. are well described. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, I think we, you know, we need more prioritization of taxonomic things. Um, and, you know, as a... <laughs> As someone who is trying to increasingly work on on evolutionary biology questions, I'm always keeping in the back of my head the fact that I I need to continue to promote my my taxonomic work too. I cannot leave that by the wayside because it's really important. And it's it also gives me it, I get a lot of fulfillment from it because it is something that has um, direct rewards. Well, so. yeah, and I think it's extremely important. People fail to see how important it is. You know, to, to describe a species, to understand what that species is, it's extremely important because it's assuring that that animal is going to be, you know, preserved for the future. It's, it's very important. Especially uh, when we break up these complexes. Exactly, exactly. I totally agree with that. It's, it's super important. Good taxonomists, though, like you. And not, not all oh, these crazy <laughs> things that sometimes you see. Oh, well, thank you. Sometimes you see some, some <laughs> papers. We've discussed them here before. That... You know, yes. People have yes. to see the last episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I think that's quite enough of us discussing this whole uh, red listing problem. That was a really interesting discussion. Thank you for that. Um, we're still in works in progress, so we haven't <laughs> got far yet. But <laughs> I have just two last things, um, which is that this week. I'm going to the meeting of the SEH, which is the European Society of Herpetology, um, which is in Milan. Nice. I decided very last minute that I was going to be going to that because the original plan was that I would be going to help teach a course. And I'm now only going for that next week. Um, so, yeah, I will be there. I will be hopefully meeting a few people and, uh, and seeing some nice things. I'm really excited to talk with some of my Colleagues that I don't get to see very often. So there's that. And also, I got a grant to go to the World Congress of Herpetology in Dunedin in January. That so I'm nice. very excited about that. That'll I be my first time uh, that's gonna be going in New to Zealand, that right? part of the world. Yeah, it's I, in New Zealand. I yeah. expect you to find an Altinus or we are going to have a big problem. So you better find an Altinus while you're there. <laughs> Oh, yeah, no, Hoplodactylus uh, Hop del Corti is like top of the list. Oh, I figure <laughs> New Zealand has never had so many professional herpetologists in it ever at, at any time. one time. So, 
you know, if people like the gecko gods are all there looking for geckos at the same time, if anyone's going to find Hoplodactylus, I it'll be, be them. So. Surprised or good. <laughs> I, 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 Honestly, I said the, low, the, the bar lower with Analtinus. Just find Analtinus. Analtinus <laughs> species in yeah, I, honestly, I don't think I'm going to have that much time for herping, unfortunately. Um, I have to get back relatively quickly. But I'm also a little hopeful that I can find some... Uh, what I really want to see is a kiwi. Like, a noltinus would be nice, but I'd, like, a kiwi would make me the happiest. It's also a reptile, so we're fine. <laughs> yeah. No, but it's not that easy. I mean, it's, well, all these animals that we're talking about are super hard to find because, as we all know, New Zealand has been really bad to their environment. So... <laughs> Yes. There's not much things. I would left. love to see a Tuatara as well, but mm-hmm. who knows? We'll, we'll have to see. Um, yeah, I, I might try and coordinate with some people to go and, and visit one of the islands, but at the minute, it looks like my budget and time are going to be really tight. Uh, so we'll have to see. We'll it's have lo- to see. It's, it's a, a hell of a long way to just yeah, fly for a week. Yeah, it's a long flight. So, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so that's it. That's that's all I've got. Uh, it's not <laughs> you. What's been going on? I'm looking Jesus for an hour. Christ. What you got? Uh, mine is super uh, short. I, I I'm still working on a lot of things that I cannot that I'm still under embargo, so I unfortunately cannot say. Um, I'm working. I'm I am working on this um, uh, reconstructions of ground sloths of extinct ground sloth of uh, about the locomotion of extinct of extinct ground sloths, which is really interesting. Uh, so I'm having a lot of fun reconstructing these ground sloths, which are some of my favorite place to see mammals. And um, I also, if you remember last episode, I was talking about that on World Lizard Day, which was August the 14th. I was going to release It was, this, yeah. Yeah, I was going to release this um, uh, uh, illustration that I was wanting to release for a long time and I did and it was about uh, the different populations that are talking about species complexes that are candidate for um, species recognition in the genus Iguana which is the ultimate Iguana genus is Iguana of course and (laughs) for a long time a lot of these species have been considered I mean Iguana for a long time has been considered to be composed of two species Iguana Iguana which is the green iguana that was supposed to be distributed from Mexico all the way down to southern Brazil and Paraguay. Um, and Iguana delicatissima, which was a species that was only endemic to the Lesser Antilles. The big difference between this spe- these two species was that Iguana delicatissima doesn't have that very round, typical plate under the eardrum that oh, Iguana has. It's a, that makes it super recognizable. It has a lot of other things, but that is like the most recognizable thing about those ones. However, yeah. they still can interbreed. Those two species can interbreed and they hybridize. But what happens is that as we've been talking about a lot of these um, species that have huge distributions over a large area that in this case includes all of Central America and most of almost all of South America, means that they probably are species complexes. And that's the right. case with Iguana Iguana. 
So exactly uh, as we talked about in episode six. Yeah, look, we can do it too. Common Descent <laughs> podcast. Stop <laughs> <Suck> it. <laughs> and and we will talk about more about the Iguana situation in one of their works in their breaking news because there's a paper about it. Yeah, that we'll talk yeah, about. in just a minute. Yeah, but I just wanted to say that uh, thank you very much to everybody that liked that uh, post that I did with the Iguana drawings because. People really liked it. And since then, I also did one to for people to uh, identify their corytophanid lizards, so basilisks. Uh, there were also people liked a lot. I've been thinking about doing a few more of those. Mark and I have been talking about doing some, yeah. uh, some of... I, I'm, fam- I, I'm familiar I, with neotropical species, so it's very easy for me to do neotropical species. But for other taxa, like uh, old world taxa, I had to do a little bit more research. So yeah. Mark and I have been thinking about collaborating on some of those. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I I really like these very simple illustrations because I think that what people are, you know, if you're trying to identify these animals from afar and if it's possible, then all you need to reduce it to is a few stripes and a few variations just in terms of cast height or whatever for your um, for your basilisks. And I I really, really like this illustration style. It also looks like it looks like I mean, compared to what you usually produce, it looks like it's been done in like a, a few minutes. It, that's what but it is. The, it's it's, a few minutes. Uh, yeah, but it, it, it's still so useful and so good. I mean, it's no wonder that the reception was so cool. Yeah, I wanted to and create... And immediately when I looked at this, I was like, yeah, we need this for Madagascar. No, and I wanted to create something <laughs> that, that had like the key, well, what you said, the key features that are easy to identify and probably a few pointers exactly. in text. Look for this, 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 this. And that, 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 yeah. that would be great. And what is awesome about it is that I, um, uh, let me just see here, Isabel Enrique, the uh, Caribbean officer for Fauna and Flora International in Cambridge in the UK, contacted me about using my uh, uh, illustrations of, for, of the iguanas that I did to, um, uh, she wrote me, as part of the activities for this project, we plan to train government officers to identify the Caribbean native species and therefore avoid them being smuggled to Europe and the USA. Uh, And also because there are introduced iguana uh, species that are introduced in these small islands and they're interbreeding. So, you know, with the with the native iguana species so it's very important for them to recognize these species because as of this moment these populations are considered to be the same taxon even though they are not this is what we were talking about just right now with mark about the importance of recognizing species complexes and um the importance of taxonomy of this because it's because we can lose these populations to live in these islands either by habitat destruction and never understanding that they were there to begin with because we were confusing them with a, a, a mainland species. And also... Happens all the time. It happens all the time. And also because they're interbreeding with iguana populations that are from other areas. So both things... Introducing... I mean, iguanas are introduced in places all the time yeah. as well. So yeah. it's uh, just very liable to accidentally Indeed. pollute the gene pool of a place like that. So I was very happy to say to tell her, yeah, for sure, use my illustration. I would love to collaborate uh, with the pro- with that project in that way. I mean, uh, any way I can help, I'm 
more than glad to do it. So, yeah. And of course, I've been working on my book. I'm still working on my book. One day I will finish it. <laughs> the good part. You're about to run out of 2019. Yeah, I think I will finish it, but not publish this year. But uh, but what yeah. is good is that I finally finished all the uh, illustrations that will be in the evolutionary trees for the Triassic and the Jurassic. So that makes it more than 600 species. Wow. Depicted. And that doesn't count all the other illustrations that are going to be in the book. So I think I might get to like probably 800 species de depicted, 800 extinct species depicted. I am tired. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I get exhausted from cutting out frogs for my, for the th stuff that I'm working on right now. And all I'm doing is like click, 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 click all the way around these animals. Nothing like the scale of shit that you're you're illustrating. You, you, you know, the most challenging part for me has been dealing with like uh, primitive mammaliforms or cynodonts. They all look very much similar, and you have to reconstruct mm. them, and they're not super interesting looking. So you're like, uh, I'm not one of these little rat things, like sea turtles. Yeah, Just like sea exactly, turtles. exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> turtles are a pain to do. Trust me, I had to do a bunch of turtles, but. So yeah, yeah so that, yeah, that's what I've been doing. We can we can move on to the next section now. Great. Let's do that. All right, we'll move on. Um, before we get to everyone's favorite section, breaking news, we're gonna first talk about uh, some follow-up on previous episodes. So um, in episode nine, we mentioned this preprint that was by Katharina Wollenberg and other colleagues. Uh, called Patterns, Mechanisms, and Genetics of Speciation in Reptiles and Amphibians, which is a big review paper that they they um, were they had released as a preprint. Well, now it's been published in the journal Genes. You can go get it. Uh, it will be linked in the show notes. The other big thing is the Anol CRISPR paper that was published. Because um, we couldn't go an episode without mention Anolis. Of course, of course, yeah. Um, I'm sure that, uh, by the way, the, the, the Anol people would be thrilled to have some similar Anol illustrations to your uh, basilisk thing as well, but that would be a nightmare. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. very much. Um, so, of course, that story has once again made it into the news, um, although I think it basically stole its own thunder by coming out as this preprint first, but... Still, really cool. It's been published in Cell Reports. Again, link will be in the show notes. And then um, the third piece of follow-up is that uh, Thies Vandenberg contacted me. He's a student um, in the Netherlands, I think. And he wrote to me to be basically be like, hey, you know that Iguana paper that you talked about in episode six? Well, it's been published. It was published in Zootaxa, which is why I didn't get the memo. Um, and basically he was like, oh, by the way, the results that they published are not the same results that they had posted in the preprint that we had talked about in episode mm -hmm. six. And, uh, that was quite a shock to me. Yeah. So, uh, instead of describing, yeah, uh, yeah, I don't know about disappointing. I was just like, I guess disappointing in the sense that they'd put forward these new names and now not entirely clear if they've published those names or not. And instead of describing species, they describe two new subspecies. 
which they is, did elevate Rhino Lofa to species yeah. level, which yeah. is good. But part of it, the still, problem is like the problem is that the reason probably why they didn't elevate these things to species because because they are they need to see to solve the iguana problem. You're gonna have to see the entire iguana. What is the iguana iguana complex distribution? So for that, you have to see specimens yeah. from Central America, from South America, East and West of the Andes, uh, from South America, North and South of the Amazon River, from all the islands of the Southern Caribbean where they're present, because all of those are going to be different taxa. And I know since I published since I published the post uh, about the iguana, I got uh, the iguana foundation. A lot of people reached to me and um, told me that there are a lot of people already working on this. There are people working. Mm. The, with the populations from Curaçao, I know that the, the same people that publish the papers of the news sort of species are working with the iguanas from Saba Island, which appear to be a melanic taxon that is also different. Um, so mm. I expect this to be resolved. The reason why I say it's disappointing is because I've been waiting for this for a long time. I've been thinking about this problem with iguanas for a long time. I know it's difficult because Obtaining uh, DNA to do molecular studies is relatively easy because these are tend to be common animals. But um, the morphological work is a nightmare because you're gonna yeah. you're gonna have to be studying a lot of large, large, very large. Yes. Plus, I mean, the the old material is maybe a little bit difficult to get. Uh, I mean, you have to clarify the existing names yeah. first, and I imagine there are quite a lot of names involved. Just going to be and, you know, you need to then, I guess this is probably a thing where they're going to turn around and say, okay, let's again throw some kind of uh, sequencing method at these old types to try and clear up this problem, which I would totally sympathize with. And this is not a case where I would want to be going around and trying to, like, assign these individuals to different subpopulations when the collection data might be miserable and, and all kinds of stuff. So, yeah, I think that it is a case where, as we had talked about in our original discussion in episode six, it was very hasty. First of all, publishing new names in a preprint is always going to be a little bit too hasty. Yeah. And, and then to turn around and be like, oh, sorry, no, this is actually not the, the conclusions from our final study. Like, why did you publish the preprint in the first place? You know, it was a reviewer. Of course it was. Of course it was. But, you know, all they've done, I mean, it, no matter what, the unpublished manuscript, those are not valid names from appearance in the preprint, which is relatively clear from the code. But... Still, you contaminate a little bit the taxonomic work, and in in a group that's already so taxonomically difficult, yeah, adding to that complexity is never a good thing. It's not something you should be striving for. So, I just don't just don't do it. Don't publish your new species as a preprint. <laughs> that's that's the moral of the story. The good thing is that hopefully, because there are so many groups of people working with iguana iguana complex. Hopefully, we'll get some sort of resolution to this soon. Um, as of now, at least we can separate the Central American iguanas, basically the iguana that everybody has in the pet trade, um, as yeah. a separate species. It's iguana rhinolofa. 
That taxon yeah. likely extends to South America, west of the Andes, like I put in my post. Yeah. Very likely the same taxon, but as of now, only the Central American um, uh, populations can be assigned to that species. Yeah. So go check out the paper. Again, it'll be in the show notes. I don't think it's open access and it's published in Sutaxa, but where there's a will, there's a way. So you should be able to get hold of it. Yeah, and and it's this. And this, you see, one is are super beautiful, so you should check them out because they have nice pictures. Yeah, exactly. So, and iguanas are really a thing that, uh, although everyone sort of takes them for granted, they do need a lot more research. Yeah. So you know, as you can see in my poster, there's quite a lot of variation. Surprising amount of variation. I had no idea. Yeah, pretty impressive. Okay, that brings us. To everybody's favorite section. Breaking news. Right. We have rapid fire uh, round. So we're going to try and get through all of these papers relatively quickly that have come out. I want to start before I get into the papers by just reminding people that there is going to be a day um, called The Future of Herpetology Inspiring Women and Forgotten Frogs that will be hosted in Ride New South Wales in Australia. Go to raft.org.au if you are interested and able to go to that. It looks great. There's going to be a cool lineup. Did I mention it's going to be on the 28th of September? It's going to be on the 28th of September. So if you can go to that, go to that. All right. Now, moving on. We have just a vast number of papers that have been published, as always. But what was really cool is that a journal that I've never even looked at uh, in, in the in pre previous episodes for herpetological papers, has in one issue published seven species on herpetological topics. Those topics include seven articles. Seven articles, actually eight articles. Yeah, you said yes. species. Se sorry, <laughs> seven. <laughs> uh, oh no. Um, so. A journal that I've never even looked at in the past has published eight articles on more or less seven separate topics relating to herpetology in one issue, which is really cool. So the topics that they've published include brachycephalus conservation. Those are the beautiful pumpkin toadlets. Uh, Paraguayan squamate barcoding which is quite cool. Um, if you want to look at the actual tree of that paper, though, you have to go into the supplements. Surprisingly, they didn't seem to identify any candidate new species, which is a bit odd. Um, a new paper on the rarity of new world pit vipers and phylogenetic correlates thereof, which is a bit of an interesting study that I did not have a chance to dive into, but the methods that they've used look really interesting. There is something about climate change and Chelonians, a review. Chelonians? Uh, like Chelonians, yes. Chelonians, yes. <laughs> I use a, a ch sound, uh, just like I do for chameleons. Um, <laughs> uh, something about uh, BD distribution in Costa Rica. Also, a phylogenomic reconstruction on dart frogs, and then which is very cool. They use sequence capture techniques in order to uh, get the deep phylogeny of dart frogs out, but somehow they then related that to conservation in a very weird 
mapping method. I didn't really grasp what they were getting at, but I only looked at it for not more than five minutes. So that looks like an interesting study. And two separate studies on spatial ecology of different turtles. Um, so go and check out that issue of diversity. It looks really cool. I'm very surprised that they had so many articles uh, in one issue on, on herpetological topics, but I'll definitely be keeping more of an eye on them in the future. Now, moving on. Uh, a new paper was published actually before the last episode, and we missed it, but I wanted to go back to it because it's so fucking cool. Um, it's by Eva Fisher et al., published in the Royal Society Open Science, and the title is The Neural Basis of Tadpole Transport in Poison Frogs. And this paper, using methods that I do not understand, <laughs> found out which areas of the brain are responsible for trad tadpole transport in various different groups of dart frogs, which is super, super cool. So different parts of the brain are controlling this uh, function, and they're really the first people to do this. Um, for those of you who don't know, if a fisher is doing a lot of really cool work on behavioral stuff uh, in, in South American dart frogs. And the last author on this paper was uh, Lauren O'Connell, who is based in California and is also doing amazing things with dart frogs uh, and actually various other frogs. I know that she's now working on a glass frog project, for example. Um, definitely you should go and follow both of these people on Twitter. You'll find their handles in the uh, show notes because they don't. I don't have them on the top of my head or in the show notes at the moment, but I will definitely get them. Um, they're very cool. Go follow them. So next paper is by Mikhail Rovatsos et al. in Molecular Ecology, a paper entitled The Rise and Fall of Differentiated Sex Chromosomes in Geckos. And uh, the reason I wanted to highlight this paper is because it is mostly looking at Peridura, which are these uh, ground geckos from Madagascar. And what they show is that uh, at very early on, these geckos evolved um, a sex determination by uh, so, so sex chromosomes, and then they were lost again, which is a really interesting pattern. Uh, my only caveat with this paper is that the phylogeny that they've used of the geckos inside it is wrong. <laughs> it's a big um, caveat. It, <laughs> which, uh, which, you know, it's just because they, they only included Malagasy outgroups for the, for the phylogeny, which is incorrect. Peridura so that basically are... makes the results incorrect. <laughs> well, no, because the, the phylogeny within Peridura is going to be correct. The question is okay. whether or not they really, these sex chromosomes really originated at the base of Peridura. Mm. But within, there is definitely a clade within the Peridura that is, uh, that has lost these sex chromosomes again, okay. which is kind of cool. And that is, that will remain no matter what the rest of the phylogeny says. Okay. It's just the deep phylogeny okay. that is more or less incorrect. Okay. The next paper is by Natalie Feiner, published in Evolution Letters, uh, entitled Evolutionary Lability in Hox Cluster Structure and Gene Expression in Anolis Lizards. So, ha, we come back to anoles once again. And um, there is actually a post about this that summarizes it much better than I ever could, posted on Anol Annals. So you'll have to go and check that out. Again, the link will be in the show notes. Yes. But basically the gist of this 
is that um, anoles are putting transposable elements, these bits of the genome that replicate themselves. Usually, they're not allowed to enter, enter these Hox genes. Which Hox genes are the ones that exactly. code the embryo um, to form in, limbs in, uh, and all those to form yeah. all of the different regionalizations of the of the developing embryo. Well, usually they're under such strong selection that these transposable elements are basically not allowed in. But uh, for some reason, anoles, some species of uh, some groups of anoles, and somehow apparently also related to the speciation events themselves have allowed these transposable elements to, to enter their Hox genes, which is uh, very unusual and has well, some weird and interesting... Let, let's, remem let's remember that anoles are masters of speciation. They speciate like crazy. So... This is definitely true. So, uh, I mean, anoles are just doing something very weird. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw the same thing in cichlid fish, yeah. for example. Um, or or, or yeah, pristimantis so, frogs or stuff like that. Also possible. Also possible. Not pristimantis. There you get crogasterid, right? The, the crogasterid family. Crogasterid yeah. For yeah. some reason, the pristimantis yeah. is pristimantis the genus. Yes. <laughs> Which is one of the most diverse uh, genera in uh, of frogs in the world. Yeah. Um, but anyway, anoles are once again doing something very weird and we don't really have a good explanation for it. But as uh, Natalie explains in this post on anole annals, uh, it allows us to, to, or it allowed them to erect some really cool hypotheses that can then be tested relatively easily in the future. Okay, next, we're just zipping through these. It's going great. Um, next is a paper by Philip L. Skipwith et al., which is just a wonderful surname, <laughs> uh, published in Molecular Phylogenetics and Evolution, entitled, Relics and Radiations, Phylogenomics of an Australian, no, try again, Phylogenomics of an Australasian Lizard Clade with East Gondwanan Origins. Now, essentially, what they've done here is reconstruct the phylogeny of the, the Diplodactyloidae. It's a very uh, nice paper. Di di very, very nice paper. Diplodactyloidea, yeah, yeah superfamily. Yeah. Um, really cool paper. A, Absolutely beautiful figures. Go check it out. Yeah, uh, super nice. Yeah, I didn't have a chance to read it in detail. Did you look at it closer? I, I read it, but I didn't read it in detail, but I, I read it. I read through it. Yeah, cool. We, this is a group of geckos that we talked before. They include all these diverse um, legless and leg forms. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's a they, they're just they're just ridiculous lizards. They're doing very very weird things. Yeah, and uh, yeah, so go look at that paper. Um, it's unfortunately not open access, so you'll have to um, find a way find to get to ways. it. Yes, <laughs> find find an alternative <laughs> way around. Um, <laughs> but yes. Very cool. And we need to see more of these things, more of these phylogenomic approaches to large clades of lizards, because it is amazing how poor, especially the phylogeny of geckos, really is. Yeah. There, I was recently trying to figure out what's the sister group to Europlatus. Answer? Nobody fucking knows. Really? I wouldn't imagine that they would. Yeah. Isn't that shocking? So, fun story. 
the phylogenetic sister to Europlatus for the last several years has consistently been part of Nemaspis, day geckos from mainland Africa. And we think that this is maybe something that traces back to weirdness in a paper published maybe back in 2008 or something, that basically everyone's just reusing their genetic sequences to get that. The thing is that the African Nemaspis, so Nemaspis are these uh, day geckos. They're found in Africa and Asia, but they're actually um, very polyphyletic. So the African clade, not related to the Asian clade. And these African guys are being found as sister uh, to Europlatus in some reconstructions or, or most of these reconstructions. Um, and yeah, we so we figured that maybe there's some weird genetic stuff going on there that's putting that together. But a lot of people talk about so just exactly the same trap um, that Rovatsos et al. have fallen into, not actually looking into the, the deep literature on gecko phylogeny, you just assume that these things that are diversifying in Madagascar are somehow closely related to each other, but they're simply not. It seems that Europlatus are really just a completely different group of geckos, but uh, not clearly resolved. And this traces back to the fact that the phylogeny of most geckos is rubbish, and the African nemaspis are extremely poorly sampled. Except in the New World. In the New World, they're super well. I mean, they're, they're oh, I forgot the Nemaspis are also in the in the. No, oh, no, you no. mean geckos? I mean geckos. Geckos in the New World are, oh, are yes. much. The phylogeny of geckos in the New World is much better understood. Yeah, Aaron Bauer has yeah. done great with that. You know, like. Yeah, yeah. and and um, you know, I think Aaron is also involved in this paper. Of course, he is. Um, it's every paper that is of any importance of geckos had to have Aaron Bauer as an author. Yeah, I mean, Aaron is uh, is one of the main reasons that I decided that I really wanted to go to um, to this meeting next week as well, because I knew that he would be there. I saw that Juan Daza is also going to be there, and I really wanted to meet up and talk with them. So, um, yeah, but these these new papers that are coming out uh, from from their from their research groups and looking at these phylogenies in greater detail. It's really uh, overdue that we get this kind of resolution, but it's really cool how much uh, new resolution we have. And their phylogenies are just I- incredible. I mean, the the diversity is bonkers. It's completely yeah. bonkers. Yeah. It is, so, it's a group, it's it a group does, of geckos that have diversified in crazy, in, in, in ways that no other Greco group has. You know, you have the crazy yeah. snake-like, legless forms and, and you have our, the, all these crazy forms that have like uh, exude that thing from the tip of their tail and this is yeah 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 <laughs> we are completely weird insane yeah. and you know all of the coralophus the guys with the basically prehensile tails yeah. and uh yeah i mean salt the 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 saltuarius and uh Philurus, which are leaf-tailed geckos and then I'm just looking at the phylogeny right now of the carpodactylids, and it looks like Oria, which is another kind of leaf-tailed gecko, basically, is also essentially basal within, or so basally diverged within the carpodactylids. Crazy. <laughs> um, so yeah, no, that's um, really cool. The really, contents really cool. are weird. Yeah, they they are geckos. Gecko geckotins in general. 
very odd. They're a super old group, so it makes sense. I mean, they, they were one of the... I mean, we have records from the Gakotan lizards all the way back to the Jurassic. And it's, you know, they've been going around for a long time. Yeah. Um, we have two more papers that I'd like to just talk about a little bit. Um, the first of them is by Akinobu Watanabe et al., published in PNAS, uh, which is about ecomorphological diversification in squamates. Um, so the, the title is Ecomorphological Diversification in Squamates from the conser from Conserved Pattern of Cranial Integration. Um, this is a really cool paper published from the lab of uh, Anjali Goswami, who I suppose many of you may know. Um, she's based at the Natural History Museum in London. Um, and basically, this paper looks at in, in incredible detail at the osteology of these, um, of basically all lizards, including snakes, yeah, gravel, great. Gravel, yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, and looks at the different pieces of their skulls to try and figure out um, what are the correlates of fossorializations of becoming fossorial and, uh, and other, you know, ecological uh, predictors, what elements of the skull increase in evolutionary rate when you are... Um, when you are a herbivore, carnivore, insectivore, or omnivore, or depending on what kind of habitat you are going into. So just really, really, really cool results um, presented in an extremely understandable manner. So even without reading the text, you can just look at the figures and be like, oh, yeah, okay, I get it. So for example, the frontal bone, which is the one on top of the head, the either side of your skull, um, is has a dramatically increased evolutionary rate in herbivores relative to everything else. In fact, in herbivores in general, the evolutionary rate of various different elements of the skull is really, really increased, which is just really cool. So um, you should definitely check out this paper. It uh, is one of the most impressive pieces of uh, geometric morphometrics that I've seen ever. Um, and published in PNAS, which is a, a great journal as well. So that's really cool. And finally, we have this paper by uh, Kirili Chaplin et al., published in Systematic Biology, which is also about, uh, about geometric morphometrics, but this time they're using um, an integrative approach. So uh, the title of the paper is an integrative approach using phylogenomics and high-resolution X-ray computed microtomography or X-ray computed tomography for species delimitation in cryptic taxa. And what they've done in this paper is to look at uh, earless dragons, which are tympanocryptus species, and in these things, which are apparently taxonomically rather difficult, they have integrated data from single genes and SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms, so basically uh, um, a way of recognizing small differences across the genome, with also micro uh, with 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 microcomputed <coughs> tomography, micro CT, to delimit species within this group. 
which as far as I'm aware has never been attempted before. They really took the geometric morphometric information and used that on top of their genetic phylogeny in order to help them delimit species. I really think that this is a great approach um, and it's a way that we're going to see a lot of things moving towards because as we are moving into this era of more and more availability of genomic data, decreased understanding of morphology, and also uh, the, the problems that are left by taxonomists get harder and harder because we prioritize the things that are easy, essentially. And we're going to be left with a lot of problems that we can only really solve in a super integrative manner. And the best way to do that is to do it in an explicit framework. So not just to say, okay, we made this phylogeny, and then looking at the phylogeny, we did a separate analysis and decided that we would divide things this way and that way, which is how we essentially do it, I, my colleagues and I. Including that in some kind of real framework is the next step up, because now you can say, okay, well, what happens if we allow this algorithm to try and pull out the dominant directions of morphological change that are actually related to the phylogeny of these animals? And it can probably help us to deal with a lot of very taxonomically complex, uh, complex species groups. Yeah, some, some taxonomic complex groups are only taxonomic taxonomically complex because people haven't really bothered to look at them properly, but there are some that are genuinely problematic. So, Right, exactly. It's just like, uh, you know, a, a polytomy, so a bit, a, a branch on a tree that you can't figure out, you can't resolve. There are two different kinds, essentially. There are hard ones and soft ones. The hard ones, doesn't matter how much data you throw at it, it's always going to be a polytomy because it is a genuine split of three three branches. A soft one, you can throw enough data at it and suddenly it will resolve itself. And a lot of our species complexes, our species complexes are soft species complexes. We just haven't tried hard enough. Yeah. But we are going to come to some hard ones and those are the ones that we're going to have to do this kind of very complicated uh, method to, to try and resolve. Yeah. Good. And that, my dear friends actually brings us to the end of this episode. It's a short one by comparison, still rather long by recording time. <laughs> we can we cannot aim, make a, sh a short episode, even if we try our hardest. The aim was to have a 45 minute episode, and here um, we are recording our one hour 45. So it will never happen. <laughs> it won't happen. Anyway, um, thanks a lot for listening. Thanks for joining us on the show. Um, you can find us on the internet. Gabriel, where can one find you on the internet? I am at Serpent Illus. That's Serpent as a serpent and Illus as illustration on Twitter, on Instagram, and on Facebook. Excellent. And you can, can find Ethan, who will not be able to join us this week. Uh, what were you going to say? No, I mean, I was going to say that you can also find me on my website, GabrielUgeto.com. You can find Ethan, who unfortunately wasn't here at this episode, at Black Mud Puppy on basically all the things. Uh, and you can also find him on thenutist.com, N-E-W-T-I-S-T. You can find me at Mark Shirts pretty much everywhere where internet is to be had. Uh, and you can follow our podcast 
or you can check our, our, our uh, show notes at www.squamatespod.com. You can find us on Twitter at SquamatesPod, Facebook, SquamatesPod, Instagram, SquamatesPod. You can send us emails at squamatespod at gmail.com, and you can leave us very nice reviews on iTunes and pretty much any app that will allow you to leave reviews. We really appreciate them, and we appreciate you for listening. And with that, we'll end the show as we always do. Hakuna Squamata!